Graphic Nature acknowledges the Bunwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we record the show and pay our respects to Elders past, present and future. We also extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this podcast. Due to the graphic nature of this program, listener discretion is advised. Fighting for what's right, for justice, that's what a hero does. It is my opinion, without any reasonable doubt and without any reservation, that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. Comic books are pure evil. Satan himself condemns our children to the fiery depths of hell. How a particular tale can come to life in the mind of a reader is endlessly fascinating to me. We have found that all comic books have a very bad effect on teaching the youngest children the proper reading techniques. This balloon print pattern prevents that. I am not a villain. I am a victim. A victim of a society that tortured me. Vengeance will be mine. It'll be mine. Welcome to Graphic Nature, a podcast exploring the inspiring world of comic books, the culture that supports it, the creators, publishers and people behind the printed pages and digital screens, pushing the medium on into the future in Australia and the world. I'm Zoran Ilyevsky. On this episode, we're joined by creator extraordinaire, Queenie Chan. Queenie, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Let's get straight into it. Quite quite an uh, uh, amazing career. You know, you do so many different things. Uh, I, I just wanted to ask how how uh, your interest in comics started, like where it all began? Well, I was born in Hong Kong and um, came over to Australia when I was six years old. So I was very lucky in that I've always had family uh, relatives who kind of um, encouraged me to read comics and introduced me to reading comics. And since this was Hong Kong, and, um, most of the comics that I read were part of Japanese manga. And so I got into the classics like Dragon Ball. Back then it was pretty huge. Like Dragon Ball was always pretty big um, mm-hmm. back then. It still is big, amazingly. Yeah. And I guess my cousin in particular, I have a cousin called Cousin Mun, who's a doctor. So he kind of introduced me to Dragon Ball. And then when he saw that I was interested, continued to introduce me to more and more of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when I realized that there was a lot of, a lot of different kinds of manga out there, I started buying on my own. And when I came... Because I holiday in Hong Kong frequently. So when I come back to Australia, we'd go to Chinatown and buy the comics as well, as expensive as it was over here. <laughs> and um, then Kinokunia came along and that interest just continued, at least in Sydney anyway. I'm not sure how people get their manga in other, other cities in Australia, but uh, in Sydney we have Kinokunia and they have a huge array of Jap- um, Japanese manga, whether in English, Japanese or Chinese. So that bookstore is uh, is the center of a lot of my comic buying life. Was there any one particular title that really kind of inspired you? There were many, many different types of titles that I read, but I think there was one in particular who inspired me to pick up a pencil and start drawing. Uh, unlike a lot of comic book artists, I didn't draw as a child. I wasn't encouraged. I was more of a um, computer programmer type, and I was big on programming. And wow. Talk a little bit about that. And, um, yes, please. Later on. Back to, you know, what inspired me to yep. actually start drawing comics. Yep. It was a manga that was pretty popular at the time, but now that I read it as a much older adult, I think I kind of grew, outgrew it at some stage. Right. That was Ronin Kenshin. So that was translated sometimes with Samurai X in the West. Oh, yep. And it's a story about a wandering Ronin. So that was pretty popular at the time. 
And so I don't know what it was about that particular volume of Veronica. It was volume 17, I remember specifically. But there was something in it that made me think, oh, you know, I really liked the story at the time. And I thought, I maybe I could do this. You know, I could pick up a, you know, a pencil and start drawing, even though I've never really drawn that much before, apart from for school projects, because like I said, I was never encouraged and I didn't really see myself as particularly artistic. But hey, things happen. So. Wow. That's how it began. What What do you think about that particular comic made you pick up the pen? What made you think that it was something you could do? I have no idea, really. Right. There's, there's, I, I don't know. It's one of those moments where you say, oh, you know, I've been consuming for so long. And I think this story maybe was, would be interesting if it went in this direction. So like a lot of people who start writing, and a lot of people start with fan fiction, my first comic page was actually a variation of a Ronin Kenshin a manga page where I try to draw the main character talking to another character and uh, just kind of take the story in my own direction of what I think it should happen. Yeah, right. And then it was like, hey, you know, I could draw a comic page. Maybe I could draw more of this. And then that didn't really go anywhere. Like my first few comic pages were just, you know, in pencil and very rough. And then afterwards, it's like, hey, maybe I could do my own original story. And that wasn't much of a leap to go from, you know, fan fiction fan comic really and then straight into my own original work I, which I, I had a lot of ideas for i discovered wow i i'm i'm fascinated by you thinking you're not particularly artistic and yet here you are smashing out um amazing work like the 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 inciting um, moment of seeing that book and then wanting or thinking i'm just going to draw my own characters in a similar vein like that's that's remarkable yeah, I would say that I wasn't exactly unartistic. It's just that I never valued that particular trait. And right, it's right. like growing up in a kind of more traditional Asian family. It's like, well, artists don't make money. You should get a job that makes money. <laughs> and fair so enough. Uh, a lot of what I did in high school was really oriented to getting a money-making job. But yep. as life would have it, I ended up with a degree in programming but couldn't get a job because of the dot-com bust. So I graduated <laughs> right in the height of the 2002 dot-com bust. Right. And it's like, okay. <laughs> sometimes and there's nothing you can do about it i worked hard for my degree i thought i was i'm actually a pretty good programmer and i still think so these days because i've gotten back into programming but dear god you know um i think i was very disillusioned at the time because uh i started drawing more comics in university as a way to escape some of the unfun uh, you know the less fun parts of my degree yep you know, programming was fun. Having to work with other people was not fun, particularly when these people could not program yep. for anything. Yep, yep. And you had to work in a team because uh, programmers are required to work in a team. You can't program stuff on your own, at least not in a corporate context. Mm -hmm. And so that was really, really not fun for me. And drawing comics was one of my escapes. And then later on when I graduated, you know, it was impossible to find a job because of the... Um, economic climate at the time yeah. so that's when I started thinking maybe I could take my build drawing hobby and turn it into something that could resemble a career wow so it was and an active decision so it was an active like, let, let's yeah. see where we can take More this I'm forced into it really because um I was I had planned to become a programmer that was my actual you know life goal and well not life goal my plan really I can't say I enjoyed it at that point because while I enjoyed programming the all the other aspects of it was no fun yeah so um but that was my plan and that got derailed by forces outside of my control and I guess um these things 
happen a lot these days, actually. I and mean, if there's any young people listening to this, uh, whenever I talk about my early experiences and how I never planned to become an artist, and I have no artistic training and still don't. And it's like I always tell people, look, sometimes life happens in a certain way. And it's better when it happens when you're younger, because then you, I mean, as horrible as it is to go through something like that, you kind of gain the emotional resilience to deal with major life changes like that when your plans just go off the rails. And this is something that you didn't have to deal with in high school because you're going to be in school regardless of what you do or don't do. But, you know, there is no life map for uh, for life when you're an adult and when um, things happen. Yeah, and, um, you're, you're also in a better back, position. You deal with it. You're also in a better position to adapt when you're younger. Once you start getting yes. further on and, you know, if you decide to have a family, then particular projects and things you might want to do will take not only longer, but might not even be possible. Yeah, absolutely. So it's better that these things happen when you're young because then, you know, you're better at dealing with this stuff when you're older because the older you are, the more responsibilities you have. It's just ouch. <laughs> so the you decide, okay, I'm not getting a job in, in programming and I'm going to now jump into my hobby and uh, see where it takes me. What was what was that first book like, creating that first book? Well, uh, at the time, there was actually nothing in Australia that would publish manga-style artwork, you know, which is what I did because I was doing what I did mostly in isolation and I didn't really even read Western comics. So I had all these pipe dreams about going to Japan and doing manga, but they never went anywhere. The internet was just fledging at the time, so there's no way where you can get this kind of information. Is how do I become a manga artist in Japan? Like type that into YouTube. There's going to be a crap ton of videos, but YouTube did not exist back That's there. right. That's no, right. Neither did most of the internet. <laughs> so I just kind of slaved away with no idea what the heck I was doing. I was I was lacking in direction. I was just doing stuff that I liked. I did meet a few people online who liked the same stuff as I did, so that was actually really helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, helped with the isolation, so to speak. Yeah. What really got me into drawing my first book was um, a company called Tokyo Pop that was based in LA, who apparently had gotten manga popular yeah, in America somehow. So I randomly came across a manga competition online that was from Tokyo Pop, but they didn't allow foreigners to enter. You had to be American. But anyway, I was uh, alerted to the fact that there was an American company that published international manga and was interested in submissions. And because I kind of discovered that particular post early, I was able to get my foot in the door when I kind of packed some of my original artwork and just sent it off to them. And they came back and said, would you submit a proper pitch? Because I didn't know what a pitch was, didn't know what a submission was, right. didn't know right, right. what any of that was. But yep. they could see that there was some potential in what I did. And it was at a time before they got flooded with the slush pile, so to speak. So yep. not that many people were posting stuff to them at that time. So I got in at a good time and that. Eventually, after a lot of attempts at pitching, uh, I got my first work published, and that was the dreaming. Wow! Yeah, so uh, I was going to ask how that, that all happened. It, yeah, yeah, because uh, my pitches continually got rejected because hanging out with all the uh, with the Tokyo Pop pitching thing, I started hanging around a forum that was centered around um, Tokyo Pop creators. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the people on that forum was pitching to Tokyo Pop. So. I knew a number of people who got in with their first pitch, but I all my pitches were rejected and until they suggested a haunted school story to me. So to be honest, my first published work wasn't even something I wanted to do. <laughs> it was something that they suggested to me and I was so damn desperate that I would just take anything at the time. So yeah. that was the dreaming. And I don't regret actually being given a haunted school story to write because um, 
I had a lot of fun with that, you know, so no regrets there. I'm kind of glad my other pictures didn't get picked up. Lord knows whether anyone would remember it. <laughs> remember <laughs> them, you know, 15 years later because um, people still remember the dreaming, so... Yeah, it's yeah, it's so uh, it's a, um, plastered all over uh, all over anything that you know. If you look on the net and you type your name in, <laughs> the dreaming comes up. I think it was like um, it had a lot of things that were really great at the time and still is good for our current climate. First of all, it's an Australian-based manga, so it's very picnic rock. And so my goal was trying to introduce Australian culture, so to speak, to Americans, because oh, wow. their conception of Australia is basically crocodile dundee. And I was like, hang on, that's very masculine. <laughs> Let's do something a bit more feminine. So picnic hanging rock. And I I like the story of just schoolgirls. And you know, the, it it has happened in my life as well. Like um, a classmate of mine disappeared mm -hmm. around about that time. So that was on my mind. Right. So that's one thing. It's a, it's a quintessentially Australian story that is quite feminine. Secondly, I like horror. I like Lovecraft. So that's horror and Lovecraft. So yay for that. Yep. So I put a bunch of references uh, in for that. And that was a lot of fun. Who doesn't like it? You know, putting in references from one of their favorite authors. It also had a pretty much nearly all female cast. There was one male character who is secondary in the story, but people just forget that he exists. And so people just say it's an all female cast, which is really isn't but it's just a majority female cast and that is was extremely rare back then and it's still very rare these days yeah and um there is also an aboriginal character who's quite important who's a teacher and the two leads are twins and so they're eurasians actually so the story itself had pretty much non-white male uh, non-white non-male leads and even today you don't see much manga or comics that is actually like that and mm -hmm. it's a little strange when you think about it given the current climate you think that there's, there's going to be more of these stories but weirdly enough there hasn't been and it's very unapologetically aimed at a female readership as well because that was i was told by the um publishing house like they were aiming their target market was 14 year old girls and i thought you know i'm sure you have a crap ton of romance stories <laughs> and aimed at the girls let's do something you know girls like horror too so let's do something a little bit spooky it's, it, it, you, so that was kind yeah. of the best country. Interesting that you say that. I remember I worked in a comic shop uh, many years ago for quite a while, and it was and it was during the boom of of manga here in Australia. We couldn't keep the stuff on the shelves. Like I couldn't believe how much was just flying out the door, and 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 it was it was like all types of people were buying it. That was I think it was an education for me um, at the time. But the romance stuff was just you know. There were kids coming in spending Queenie spending hundreds of dollars. Like I couldn't believe it. Hundreds of dollars. Can they get the money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, well, they, yeah. They, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you have something that appeals to them, you know, I think that was what was lacking, I guess. With the process of sorry to stay on dreaming, but I suppose this also goes widely to a lot of your process. When when they approached you with the story, did you break it down or did they offer some sort of editorial? kind of help with with that project oh the editorial process was a total nightmare i was actually given no editorial um guidance wow they were just like okay you've been accepted now give us some pages and that was that i have four editors for the dreaming mm -hmm. basically one for each book which is not how you're supposed to do editing but i didn't know better then yeah. like i had no idea what was going on i did not know what editors did my first editor she didn't even talk to me all i did was send in my scripts and she just like copy edited them and send them back and then just asked me whether I uploaded the pages and yeah, that was it. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, she eventually got fired for lying to another creator oh, for uh, over something. Yeah, apparently she was trying to make them finish their current book faster. And so they lied about a deal that they had with Disney, which didn't exist. Oh. And so um, she eventually got fired for that. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I got my second editor, Carol, who was probably the only editor who actually did anything. <laughs> and it was then that I realized what editors actually do. He, you mean editors actually talk to you about your story and characters <laughs> and they ask, like, maybe this thing could be refined a bit more. Maybe you can rewrite this line. I mean, is that what editors do? Yeah, so that was until um, Carol came onto the, the book. But that, the book one was finished by then. So I had actually no editorial guidance for the, the dreaming and the setup and stuff. But, you know, I had an idea what I wanted to do. And while I could say the planning process, since I only had three weeks to plan the dream before I could actually start it, because uh, it got accepted quite quickly. Yep. And uh, so I had to immediately start work on the uh, book because of the deadline. And But anyway, Carol did her best. And um, I thought she was a very good editor, but she was completely overworked. And uh, she was removed from the project at the end of book two because I think she dropped the ball on the release date. There was, you know, I, I don't want to go on too much into this because it wasn't really her fault but yep. a third editor picked it up but he had his own books and so book three for the dream was kind of neglected in the marketing front because of that yeah and paul who was a nice guy he just could not deal with the workload and so all he did was mostly just uh, copy editing as well mm -hmm. so what happened with paul was that um he just was completely overworked and he just said look um it's, it's clear that you know what you're doing i can't deal with it <laughs> You know, so you deal with it. So that's pretty much it. That The whole thing was on rails by then. The last one was when the Dreaming came up with a collected edition. I mean, there were not many books that had collected editions from Tokyo Pop's OELs there. Well, there was a lot of problems with that line. A lot of the creators didn't have the experience to work on something as extensive as a 600-page comic book because mm -hmm. it was three, they handed out three volume contracts. And so, you know, what, what it's like. So um, I think for the Dreaming, it had a collected edition that sold quite well. And that was a fourth editor, Lillian. So Lillian did a lot of work. So she's quite nice. You know, she's perfectly fine and stuff. But the thing is, uh, I, I did a 20-page short story for um, the Dreamy Collective Edition, so they'll have something extra. Yep. To put that at the end, entice people to buy. And so um, Lillian was perfectly fine as an editor. But again, it was just a I worked very briefly with her on a 20-page story, and that was that. Again, I knew what I was doing. Now I know that it's one of the worst editorial experiences I've ever had. <laughs> And so but, how did, uh, back then, yeah. I, like I said, I had no idea. The uh, well, that versus let's say these days, when it comes to putting putting together your books, what what's your process like from idea to beginning? How does that all how does that all work? I always make sure that I have the ending in mind these days because mm -hmm. that happened with the dreaming. I didn't quite have the ending in mind, and that was total nightmare trying to sort everything out. So these days, whenever I do, I usually start off with um, a seed idea, of course, and I let it sit for a while. So I get a lot of ideas, yep. but I always make sure that they have time to kind of stew for a bit before I look at it again and decide whether it's worth my time. And I think that's, a, that's the thing with ideas is that when you have a limited amount of time and you draw in comics, limited amount of space and energy, you got to make sure that only your best ideas ever get made you know, and turn into a comic, particularly when you're a writer artist. If you're a writer and you have the resources to find artists to do your work, that's different. You could do whatever you want, really, if you have the money to pay the artists for that. But if you are doing everything yourself, uh, certainly only you should, the very best ideas you have should 
actually get turned into a comic because your time is so limited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's what I do. There's a lot of filtering, a lot of um, is this worthwhile? And then if I think, if say I let an idea sit for a few months' time and a few months later I come back and I still think it's very interesting an idea and it's it's still compelling, then that's when I would actually sit down and turn it into a script. So I usually just start with a very, very simple, simple kind of document, which is basically where I say page one, a single yeah. sentence, this happens, page two, single sentence, this happens, and so on and so forth. And that's pretty much how I start, really. Right, right. I don't necessarily start with the script. Because the thing is, I don't work with other people. I just, I mean, for now, I would like, I do collaborate as an illustrator with other artists, I mean, other writers. Yep. And so when that happens, I usually ask them for a very complete script as yep. much as possible, and then work on, work with them on what I uh, they think should be in the panels and so on and so forth. When I'm doing stuff on my own, I just like jump straight into it. Because I'm experienced enough by now to be able to know how much space I need for something. Yep. Yeah, but um, I guess if you're a beginner for doing this sort of thing, particularly when you're a writer-artist, um, it is good to lay out your scripts a little bit better because then you can plan. And once you do more comics, you'll get a good grasp of what your internal pacing is and your mm -hmm. style of storytelling is. Right. And that's when you can do more accurate estimates. Because I think people who haven't had much experience telling stories visually will find that sometimes they uh, leave room for too few panels or too many panels. And a story segment that you think would take five pages end up taking 10 because you do get new ideas as you go on mm -hmm. with your story. Yep. And it's important you don't let these get out of control because <laughs> then it's just, you know, the, the story will never end. And that's a common problem with a lot of comic artists is that yep. they never finish their work. Earlier on, it was a different process because considering now you've, like you said, you work on your own. So you kind of know where, where you can push limits and where you can kind of keep restrained. But with regard to like earlier projects, would you still kind of plan? Would you do all that work in the interim, like before the before you started actually working on the nuts and bolts of the project? Not really. These days, I don't really do long stories anymore because I just don't have the energy, like at my age. But that's fine. Um, at um, right now, I do a number of short comics, you know, and I think that's a very very good kind of length to do like six pages or maybe something like 32, 34, 40 pages. I think that's a very, very good length. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do spend a lot of time on the art. And I think in this day and age, it's necessary to to do so. So your work does have longevity because the days where people tolerated bad artwork are long dead. So if you're, you're, you know, and even if you had a good story and the artwork's not good, then people just don't want to look at it even because they have so much competition out there. Yeah. And this, so, is this um, mainly in... Mainly in the uh, in the manga realm, you say? Oh, everywhere. I think people just have a lot of entertainment options these days. Yeah. So if they're going to look at something, even if it's for free, they want it to be absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, and that is the nature of our kind of saturated entertainment landscape these days. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in the early, when I was working on my work earlier, I had more time and freedom and energy to experiment and find my style of storytelling. And a lot of these early experimentations are still on my website at queeniechan.com. If you go to the online manga and comics, there's a lot of embarrassing stuff that I did when I, you know, when it was in my early 20s back then. And um, you could you could see me trying to flounder around, trying to find an art style, trying to find something that I was comfortable with. And that process took years and years. Mm -hmm. That was not particularly planned well either. I guess I don't do the whole sit down and write a proper script thing. 
but then it's not right for everyone to do that. So I'm not advocating this process for everybody. But I always made sure that I did short stories at the beginning. So most of my stories were something like 30 to 50 pages long. And um, I make sure I don't go over that because then it just goes completely, you know, it becomes completely unmanageable in terms of whether you can finish something. Yep. Yeah. So I always make sure that I have a page count in mind is that this is going to be a book and it's going to be like 180 pages. So this is going to be a book and it's going to be 35 pages. I mean, typically 40, 40 pages and that's it, you know, no more. And I just kind of put the kibosh on it if it does. So the, con- the constraints on there actually help you in terms of how you would decide what needs to go where? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think constraints are always a very important thing when it comes to any kind of creation. And I think it's true whether you're doing comics or prose or video games or movies. Uh, people think that um, because you're creative, then you're going to be a springboard creator and you're just going to leap off into the deep end and it's going to be whatever you think. <laughs> you mean that's In not how it opinion, happens? That's you... not how it happens? Yeah, well, uh, it can happen like that and you'll totally regret it later on in my opinion. I totally regret it the time I did that. It's an appealing idea, the idea that you can have unlimited kind of um, opportunity to do whatever you want. But the truth is you don't. This thing's going to get finished at some point in time. Mm-hmm. And if you don't finish it, then, well, I'm not sure what your goal is. Hopefully your goal is to actually get something finished because that's how people judge whether you're a good writer or not. Mm-hmm. You see, like people seem to think that a good writer is all about whether you can keep people um, watching your show or reading your comic or reading your book or whatever, or keep playing your game or whatever. But the truth is, it's actually really easy to make people keep watching your show or, you know, reading your comic or reading your book. You just have to introduce new, shocking, stunning story elements into it, right? (laughs) And then people will keep watching or have some kind of character drama that annoys people and they'll keep watching. But these things don't necessarily make you a good writer, yeah. you know, because a good writer, a lot and a lot of people judge this. And I, a lot of people think it's unfair, but I would tell you a lot of non-creators judge writers this way. Is that whether you can finish a story properly, you know, have a, give a satisfying conclusion. That is all part of being a good writer as well. And these days, because people have a habit of binge watching stuff on Netflix and they just get everything the same go. When you're not good at that, it becomes apparent very, very quickly. I mean, we still live in an age of serialized storytelling, and yeah. comics itself comes from a very uh, traditionally comes from a s- tradition of serialized storytelling. Yeah. But the days in which people will keep watching because they're you know you keep introducing new shocking story elements to it, um, it's dying. Yeah, a lot of the comics that I used to read, I can't read anymore because they just keep going. And I've read those stories before, and I've said it many times on the podcast that those you know seven hundred issue series by major companies particularly in the west i can't i can't read them anymore they're just it's just too much once you get to the point where you're reading a story that you've already read in essence it's kind of like well i think it's time to stop now and uh, i'll move on to other stories yeah and a satisfying and a satisfying conclusion is absolutely the hardest thing to craft ever because regardless of how satisfying it is you're going to piss off a lot of people (laughs) Like that, that is like the, just the nature of serialized storytelling is that you get to the end of the story and you either tied it off well with a few loose pop friends or screen sequels, or you didn't, you know, and uh, people, when you didn't, they're like just going to forget about you, no matter how good the, or how interesting the characters are or how good the previous plotting was. It's just like if everything just falls apart in the last act 
And we've all sat through this, through movies, through TV series, through comics, through games. It's like when everything just falls apart in the last third, it's just like, uh, you know, this could have been so great. This could have been one of my top 10. This could have been blah, blah, blah. But, but <laughs> I'm not going to recommend this because in the last third, <laughs> uh, you know, the story fell apart and the motivations made no sense. You know, this character thread wasn't resolved and blah, blah, blah. People, that's where people have most of their complaints. And this is particularly frustrating for stories that were good and people want to like in the first two thirds. Yep. Yeah, so that's why I always advocate people finish things because um, there's a lot of people who don't finish stuff out there. Mm-hmm. And um, what can I say? You can't really judge whether someone's a good writer or not if they're unable to get anything finished. And companies, publishers in particular, don't want to work with people who have not finished anything. Yeah. It's like, what's the point? <laughs> there yeah. is no point. Yeah. It's, I, I imagine it's pretty particularly hard to get a, get a recurring job or, or a position at, at any publisher, any comics publisher, particularly if you can't get a, get your shit together or get your, um get your work finished. Absolutely. It's not just any publisher. It is true across the board for all the creative industries. You're a writer. You never finished a book. No publisher is going to want to look at your work. <laughs> Like they're not going, they're yeah. not going to read it. Same with comics. Same with video games. It's like there's a lot of people out there who start games, never finishes them. Like that is a publisher is not going to be interested in hiring someone who has never finished a game. And likewise for movies, it's like there's a lot of people who are out there just filming stuff on their own and they get their work finished and that's and then they show it. Yeah. If it's not finished, why show it? You know that is just true for all creative industries. Music as well. I haven't mentioned music, but yep. Yeah, yeah. No, I imagine it's. I I agree with you. I agree with you. I remember seeing. Uh, I, a friend of mine was in the film Australian film industry for a little while, and our friends of hers wrote a script, got it filmed, got investors, got it filmed, and it was it was awful. Queenie, it was an awful film, and I fell asleep halfway through the premiere, and I woke up and I watched the last ten minutes of it, and uh, walked out, and and she was she was oh, look she was a really good friend, and she we stopped outside, and she said, "What did you think?" And I said, "I said I fell asleep halfway through it," and and she's like, "Me too." She goes, "It's awful." But the people that worked on that film are now working in Hollywood. And it didn't actually, and, and, and interestingly, she said the exact same thing to me that you've just said. She said, the thing is, this was never meant to be like the, the, a magnum opus. It was only ever, it's, it's meant to be a resume. And it's like, I can work with 40 people. I can get a script together. I can get a producer. I can direct and I can put together and I can also distribute it, you know, and it was an interesting thing that, uh, that I've taken on for the rest of my life. So the work that you're working on now doesn't necessarily have to be the best, but it has to show that you can do the work. And I suppose that's kind of like any job, really. Yeah, absolutely. To be honest, I would rather read a finished story that is badly drawn and badly paced than read something that is well drawn and well paced but has no ending. <laughs> you know, that, it sounds terrible and it sounds no, super weird. But it makes but, sense. Because, you know, if I was going to be an editor and I was trying to judge someone, what is it, what are their qualities, you know, for working in the industry and producing a finished book for my publishing company? I don't, I don't have one, but, you know, yep. just pretend that I'm an editor. It's like, yes, if I think someone, okay, this is terrible, terrible art, terrible pacing, but you finished it and I can kind of judge your, you know, writing based on that. Right. I would see that person as you, this person can improve, yeah. you know, they've finished yeah. something and it's like, they've got, um, you know, they can improve their art. Mm-hmm. They can improve the pacing, but the point is they've finished something. Yes. Right. You know, whereas someone who hasn't done that, it's like, oh, okay, well, uh, yay for you. If you've got a massive webtoon audience and it's going forever, 
but you know from a publisher perspective you got you got to print an actual book it's like what's how's that going to work mm-hmm. it's like uh, publishers don't want to deal with things that are unfinished there is no point have you ever done uh, any work digitally or are you are you exclusively working on your stuff for publishing for in a book format most of the stuff that i publish for book format does have digital editions most, some don't but uh, I, my work is pretty much done digitally from the start. So the dreaming was drawn by, um, on paper mm-hmm. and then scanning to the computer and all the effects were added via Photoshop. So that was that was the process way back in the day, yep. regardless. You know, so that was always a strong digital component to my work. Nowadays, um, just one or two years ago, I kind of switched over from paper completely and started drawing on a tablet. So I'm like looking at my work on tablet right now. Yeah. And um, it took a little while for me to just grasp it. But once I did, like moving to digital was the best thing ever. Right. <laughs> There's right. Like, no more dealing with, you know, ink and no more dealing with fine liners <laughs> and paper. It's just like, air. Yeah, it's no more need for those kinds of um, tools. And uh, that's a bit of a bummer sometimes. I think hand drawn art has its own appeal. But yeah. now that I kind of moved into fully digital, it's just like it has so many other advantages. That, uh, that's just where I, how I prefer do things now aside from making your work more efficient do you did you did you gain more time oh absolutely yeah really yeah well first of all i started using 3d background so i just use um it's called the google sketchup so it used to be called google sketchup now it's got something else sketchup but um sketchup you can reproduce 3d background so it's a lot faster Right. And given my level of skill, I can just draw the character directly into a 3D background as opposed to, you know, bringing out the rulers and trying to find the horizon line and stuff like that. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so uh, that's much faster. Secondly, back on when I was drawing on paper, if I drew something too big or drew something too small, then that's a tragedy. I got to redraw it. Yeah, right. Yeah, on a computer when I'm in the sketching process, too big, too small, just recycle it. Fixed. Yeah. Yeah, so um, that itself helps a lot because um, I always start off with very rough sketches of my whole page. And that's where I figure out, um, have, have I drawn something too big, too small? Has it room for dialogue, et cetera, things like that. And it, when it becomes apparent that I have, then it's super easy to fix yeah, right. on the um, computer versus on paper. Because on paper, you do thumbnailing first, but that doesn't mean you got the um, an accurate representation of where everything is supposed to be. Yep. And I don't work in a large size. I just work in A4 on paper. Yep. You know, So um, on computer, it's just so much easier to deal with stuff like that. You lay down the panels and things don't work. You just resize it and move the panels around. It's all done digitally. Wow. And that saves a lot of time. If you ask me, the majority of the work is in the rough sketching phase. Okay. And um, I mean, a lot of it is in the uh, the stuff that comes after, but that's kind of like brain dead work. You don't have to think too much about it. <laughs> but all the, the, most of the thinking comes in the rough sketches space. Yep, yep. So basically, planning the layout for the for the for the book. Yeah, and make sure it flows in from page one to page two to page three. That the whole reading thing goes, or maybe the pacing is right, and the, or maybe the pacing is wrong. You need to fix it. I mean, that sort of stuff happens in the earlier stages. Like once you've nailed it. Then it's just a very straightforward process. Yeah, right, right. Uh, what what programs would you be using? For, is it just is it Photoshop, or would you do you have like the particular art kind of programs to do that? I use Clip Studio because that's geared towards making comics. I don't use their uh, like their paneling work. I actually use InDesign because oh, wow. I print my own books as well. So I use InDesign to lay out everything, the dialogue and stuff, and then export it to Clip Studio where I just you know, draw in the panels and everything. All right. And wow. figure out where all the um, text is supposed to be. Yeah, because um, I do a mix of prose and comics as well. 
because um, I've done some books like Fable Kingdom and I did a short story for something else. I've done a series of short stories that is in the mix of prose and comics format. And when you do that, you really have to work with stuff like InDesign. Because yep. um, Photoshop and Clip Studio lack the uh, proper desktop publishing tools to be able to present blocks of text properly yep. and in, in as good as manner as um, InDesign can. So, yeah, I use a lot of um, InDesign to do my stuff. Interesting. I've seen uh, you, you also teach. You also teach comics. And you do like short courses. If how did they? How did that come about? Oh no, I don't really teach comics. I just do the occasional library workshop for kids. Yeah. That's all. Oh right, okay. <laughs> okay. Be, I, I wouldn't mind teaching comics, but I haven't really been in a position to do that. And right now, I'm doing a PhD, so I'll probably be too busy anyway. What is but, the, um, What's the PhD on? The oh, uh, it's about neoliberalism and uh, video games and comics. And so the comics aspect is A, about digital comics and the direction that it's going in because most people's grasp of digital comics is basically the book but in digital form. Right. And so a question arises in academia asking about, you know, if we were going to use technology in comics and push it in a new direction, what would it look like? But no digital comics, particularly interactive comics, has been particularly popular. Even the Scott McCloud brought in the idea of the infinite canvas well over two decades ago. Yep. But there hasn't been much interesting stuff happening in that arena to the extent where sometimes academics even question whether the digital comics can be comics because a lot of digital comics don't necessarily retain the whole um, page layout by page that or the juxtaposed paneling that people consider key to comics. Right. So, you, yeah. so, you, so it's uh, all about definitions whether, then. In the end, what? How do you define a comic? Not or, really, because no? because academically speaking, there is no proper definition for comics. People argue about it all the time, so I don't want to waste my PhD on definition. Fair because enough. No one can agree anyway, so there is no point. But back to the whole. Uh, yeah, I also talked about labor and comics as well, because it is about partly about capitalism, and you know, comics mostly are freelancers, and uh, there's been a retreat of creator rights because of platform capitalism. Publishers themselves already take a huge chunk of the creative rights when they get published. Also, uh, web platforms like Webtoon platforms that publish creators, well, they also take an increasingly large chunk of the creator's rights when you publish on their platform. So that's a bit of a red flag that I mentioned in my PhD. Right. The truth is about digital comics is that I've been thinking, I've been asking about creating interactive comics and what that would look like and to using a game engine to do it, you know, rather than something like Flash or whatever tools that Webtoon platforms allow people to use so talking about how you can bring gaming kinds of ideas into digital comics right and uh, how that might kind of push digital comics that level that kind of interactivity might push digital comics in the new direction so this is what uh, the gist of the phd it, it is a creative project so right are you talking along the lines of like a book on your tablet but as you're scrolling through the images are actually videos and and the text can be read, also be listened to. That kind of are you talking that type of in, uh, interactivity? No. Okay. No, that's I wouldn't exactly call that interactivity. It's more like hypermedia in that right. instead of stat, something static, you're putting in something that is not static, but mm -hmm. that is hardly interactive. You just because you, I mean, in the way that I define interactivity, there's like no set definition for interactivity. But the way I define it is that the user actually moves certain events like they move the character itself in the comic panel right you know right. and bring the story in particular directions like this idea isn't new but 
I'm doing it um, as a way to educate the public about capitalism and neoliberalism because um, the purpose of this PhD is to better educate the public about the, the kind of world, we, economic world we live in these days. And will it will it be will it be in, in like a comic format? Yes, it would. Oh, great! Oh, because sweet. What like the biggest complaint people have about digital comics is that they do it panel by panel. Yeah. It's like panel. You know, if it's interactive in the way that I suggested, it's like you move around a main character like you would a video game. Right. Gotcha. Yes. Yes. Then yes. people present it in the panel by panel format, as in the panel one, and then that takes up the whole screen, and then something happens, and then they move to the panel two, and then take up the whole screen and all that. I'm like, you don't necessarily have to take up the whole screen. You know, you could have a panel that's laid out in a way that can show, like, a, you can lay out the screen in that you can show three panels at once. Yep. You know, and then you can move your character from one panel to the next, and the camera could just follow based on whatever panel. But you could leave these other panels, the past and the future, in on the screen and showing people that the past and the future still exist. Now, this is particularly interesting because... um. How interactivity can happen in this instance is that when you're focused on panel, so the center panel, which is let's let's just in theory, yep. let's just say this is the the present, things can happen in the past panel that you finished, but yep. that shows you the aftermath of something that you did. And this particular thing that happens in the past panel does not necessarily happen need to happen right after you've left the panel. It can actually happen at any point in time. Yeah you know, of a person's interaction with, maybe interacted with another character in the past. Right. And now you've kind of moved on, so you're in the present. But what happens to this other character in the past? You know, did your interaction with them affect them in some way? Like, are they crying right now because you said something to them? But if they are crying, does that mean this crying happened right after you left this panel and kind of moved somewhere else? Right. Or did it happen at some point in time later on? Maybe later that night? You don't know that. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's an interesting thing to explore because the thing about comics is that whatever panel that you're on right now, all the other panels are happening at a particular time, time and space that is outside your present panel. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily, and that's the thing about comics is that unlike film, where everything is on a fixed timeline, comics isn't. So this particular panel in the past, like it becomes something, while it was concrete, while you were actually focused on it and interacting in it, once you leave it, Okay, it becomes a separate time and space of its own. It kind of kind of gains a life of its own. And the same for comic panels in the future as yep. well. Yep. Obviously, things that you do in the present and in the past affects things that happen in your future panels. Right. Yep. So there is a lot of things that you have to think about when you're doing a comic in this form, when you're showing the past and the future panels as well. Like so there's a lot of possibilities that I might have a look at, but yeah, I'm not really sure. It sounds like a like a lot of work. Like it, it you know, it's it's one thing to draw three panels, but the amount of work that you're talking about putting into each of those panels sounds like a lot of work. Not really. Like I said, I come from a programming background. So one of the most, the best things about programming that you actually cannot do in comics is that in programming, you can reuse resources. Right. Now a character who has a, you know, animation sheet and they walk from left to right, that's a walk cycle and that's pretty much fixed. Right. If you're doing a close-up of someone and they're walking from left to right using limited animation, it's important to know that um, to, to mention that I'm using limited animation for okay. these comics. I'm not for using full-blown animation in comics because might as well do an animation. So you're talking about uh, almost like like the 60s animations where they weren't necessarily 24 frames. It was 
you know, 10 frames and they would, it was kind of like moving comics. No, I think it's a mistake to look at animation in any shape and form for this kind of limited animation. I'm calling it limited you know, animation, limited animation, because that's, you know, I can't think of another term for right, it. Right. But to draw inspiration from animation is a massive mistake in my opinion. Right. What I think, what I actually want to draw inspiration from is actually old school Super Nintendo games, which had, particularly those from Japan, mm -hmm. which a lot of the time featured limited animation in cutscenes. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of them. I think you have to see them to understand. Right. It's that um, there is a historical precedence for old school 90s Super Nintendo games, particularly a lot of these based on anime series from Japan, where the characters are drawn in typical anime form, but they don't move that much, you know, and uh, uh, they might... You might have a single character who moves from side to side. That, like, this is precedence in video games. It still exists in a lot of indie games these days. So when people look at that kind of animation, they're like, oh, you know, I get it. You know, I see where the um, historical precedence for this style of movement is from. It's definitely not from animation of any kind. Not Definitely not from TV. So the cutscenes are like, you know, so you, when you clock the game and they have the story at the end, you mean that kind of? Yes, things like that. Without talking about any kind of specific game, it's hard to, you know, quantify what, what you're talking about to be honest but i could mention some the, games. The, the only the only thing i can remember is the, the super nintendo uh, street fighter 2 from the mid 90s i think yes it was. that might that's a good example right you know okay. that is kind of awkward you know yeah, not yeah. particularly well done but when you think <laughs> about it with comic panels particularly when you're confined to a particular area of the screen so you're not taking up the whole screen nor mm. are you doing something particularly high res or complicated yeah and you can find it to a particular area of the screen, and then you have to think about comic bubbles and things like that. Yep. There are many, many ways that you can depict things that does not take much drawing. Right. Like particularly when you're talking to someone, you know, and they, so it kind of um, merges these two things. The thing about the Street Fighter cutscenes is that they took up the whole screen. Yes, yes. That's why they're limited and doesn't look that great. And I, I don't think Street Fighter does a good job of stuff like that at all. It was the 90s. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's mostly a fighting game. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was mostly a fighting game. That was the problem. And yeah. it wasn't really rooted in any comics. I think what there are SNES games that were rooted in manga series that actually did a much better job. Right. Okay. JoJo's Bizarre Adventure was one. Yep. Uh, there's Yu Yu Hakusho, among weird-ass fighting games that are actually not traditional, like Street Fighter fighting games. They're more like a mix between adventure and it's just strange. You know, there, yeah. there are some Yu Yu Hakusho, like um, SNES games, that were combat-based, but definitely not in the Street Fighter format. Right. And it's and they exist as some kind of weird-ass experimentation from the 90s. <laughs> yeah, that, that is like, what the hell? Like, who thought this was a good idea? But um, that particular style of... I really love those Yu Yu Hakusho games because... Um, those games were like a cross between playing an anime and an adventure game and a fighting game. Yeah, wow. Yeah, you have to see, have to see it to believe it. Yeah, to see how they do it. But so, um, will your PhD like will it be in the format you're talking about? Yes, right, I have to do okay. a creative project. Oh, okay, great. All right, all right. So the theme of it is called capitalism parallel lives. So the idea is that you compare the lives of a rich kid and a poor kid, and it kind of goes on to more formative aspects of their life and things like that so the idea is to have interactive panels yeah and when you finish whatever it is you're supposed to be doing this panel you move on to the next panel right and so you can see when you do it in this format it, it the, the animation can be very limited and still makes sense gotcha now it does limit what exactly you can display um, you can display in in this format but the good thing is that it has precedence in video games which is why i push so hard on the game comic hybrid thing mm-hmm 
because uh, when you lean more towards art in video games as opposed to comics, you know, people tend to be a bit more forgiving. Yeah. When you don't have such incredibly dynamic camera angles and all that. So kind of forgive me for the for the rudimentary analogy, but so kind of like like a pop up book where you can kind of move things. So let's say, for instance, if you were to do this, what you're talking about now in a traditional format, it would be, you'd have like a piece of paper underneath the panel and you can move it back and forward. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I'm going to be building it in unity and there's lots of ways that you can do panels, just including masking. So each of these panels can just be, have a longer kind of um, background mm -hmm. and they could do parallax scrolling again, right. something that's from gaming. That's very common. Yep hire a um, programming team to help me out, but the university doesn't have funding thanks to COVID. <laughs> so I guess I'll have to do it myself, but I think it's better that way. So I actually can control all the elements. Initially, when you started talking about interactive, interactive comics, I immediately thought of uh, uh, someone else I interviewed a while back was talking about scrolling scrolling comics so not traditionally so you still had panels interactive comics have existed for a long time yeah like, yeah yeah, uh, yeah infinite canvas like comic house and now the infinite canvas is interactive yes 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 as well yeah yeah yeah. gotcha all right so this is a different you know so different... um but not quite this kind of interactivity like where you have an unlimited the idea is that you have an unlimited canvas and you kind of follow panels and then they kind of diverge sometimes based, based on what you know option that you want to take and a lot of interactive panels are, uh, comics are like that Mm -hmm. And um, that's fine, you know, but I'm not like doing something like that because I'm actually basing this comic of, um, it's kind of like an extension of an existing strip called On a Plate by Toby Morris. That's about class inequality yep. and um, um, class privilege. So I decided to use that as a basis for my strip and hence you have the parallel lives function because that's how Toby did it in his original strip from 2015 on a plate. So I was like, well, you know, this is fine. Talks about class privilege, but doesn't really address race or gender. So I thought if I could do something that is similar, but allow you to choose your race and gender, as well as your class at the beginning, you could kind of expand the conversation on neoliberalism and, you know, class inequality a bit more. So that's why this thing looks the way it does. Will it be available at some point? I hope so, because the university hasn't really given me any funding to do it. <laughs> and I still have to write the thesis. It's like, uh, hopefully it would be, you know, uh, at least decent looking and playable. Yeah, because like I said, you know, I'm ending up doing all the work. Luckily I have the skills to do that, but we'll see. Like um, with experimental things, I don't want to say too much because, or promise too much because it is, ex you know, it is experimental. Yeah, right, right, right. And experiments fail all the time. It fails spectacularly. <laughs> <laughs> so I just don't want to promise anybody that this will actually work in any in any way, you know, and come out halfway decent because it is experiment from start to finish. Right, right. Well, I suppose you know everything kind of starts from an experiment, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. You're listening to Graphic Nature. We'll return right after this short message. Hi. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Graphic Nature on whatever podcast service you use. Uh, maybe even rate it while you're there. Uh, it'd be great if you could throw us some likes and or follows on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter as well. For more info, check out the website, graphicnature.media. I appreciate you listening. Uh, thanks again, and enjoy the rest of the episode. So uh, we, we briefly touched upon um, how, well, well, not briefly, but we, we've talked about how majority of the work that you do, you do alone. Uh, have you looked at collaborating in some shape or form in the past? Have you have you tried your hand at collaborating? Oh, yeah. Sure, I've collaborated with a lot of people. Um, the writing aspect's a bit tough. Like uh, I, 
I guess I have not co-written anything with anyone at this point, but I have worked as an illustrator many times. Yep. So after the dreaming, I illustrated a series of um, graphic novels with Dean Koontz and he wrote the script and, or someone else wrote the script and he kind of filled the words or whatever it is he did. And then I illustrated that. And I illustrated a series, um, a graphic novel for Kylie Chan to the series called White Tiger. Oh, that's right. And uh, Small Shen was that book. And that was the first case of a mix of prose and comics that I did because um, Kylie gave me a 10,000 word script. And I was like, there is, oh, maybe it was 20,000. It was just too long. That and I was sounds, like, sounds like a lot. Of, there is no way. <laughs> yeah, there is no way that I could adapt this without butchering half of it. And <laughs> having worked with Dean, I know that authors tend to be heartbroken if you butcher their prose. And so I thought, how about we just compromise and I'll just take a portion of this and turn a part of it into comics and just leave the other half intact. But she's like, yeah, yeah, have a go. And so we did that. And, you know, that was small Shen and apparently sold quite well. So seem to like <laughs> i mean people my from my experience the, the comics processing nobody seems to care that it's a comic prose. yeah right <laughs> so, like the only people who care are publishers and booksellers so um booksellers don't really enjoy this style and so they don't like putting it out because it does not sell a lot of the time yeah, right. probably because people mistake comics prose for illustrated prose and it's like that's not the same thing you know you can't just slap a book together with a bunch of prose and a bunch of you know illustrations and say oh that's a selling point it isn't really, you know. So it's ultimately it's the interplay of these two. Whether you do it in a way that um, helps the story flow, uh, like as it is with comics, is about the flow of the reading. If it flows well, then it's fine. And people like the story; they'll just read it, and they don't really care. Yeah, it is. Uh, from I, I've asked a few people, like, what, what was your first exposure to this comics prose format mix? And they were like, oh, it's a bit weird at first, but then I got over it. It's fine. <laughs> that's like the most of like the most feedback i've gotten regarding it so people seriously don't care whenever i've come across something that's similar to that i don't know how i feel about it still i find it hard mm -hmm. to uh in, in, to be honest i find it hard to call it a comic um because it is literally mm -hmm. it is just just prose and, and an image so it's i look i call it a picture book that's the best i can come up with that's an illust that's illustrated prose comics prose is actually about mixing comics with prose Right. Um, my so, requirement for something to be called comics prose is that it must have juxtaposed panels, at least segments with juxtaposed panels. Right. Speech balloons, dialogue balloons, right, right, things right. that gotcha. you can be considered comics. Yes. Otherwise, it's just illustrated prose. Right. And that's the same. Like, if you have something like Diary of, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, I would not call that comics prose, even though it has speech balloons and it has the occasional uh, juxtaposed panels, you know, because I think there's not enough of it. To, for it to be called a comics prose, but that is just my personal definition. So I don't think anyone really cares. <laughs> you know, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, that and stuff like that is massively popular. Yeah. I don't even know what it's called. <laughs> there must be a name for it somewhere, uh, considering how much these books sell. Yeah, you know, things that people are just like whatever. You know, happens in kids' publishing. We don't care. You know, that's not healthy. <laughs> I think that's that's probably what it comes down to. Is at the end of the day, it's selling. So who gives a shit? Why define it? Just uh, just pump it out and, and uh, watch the money come in. Yeah, pretty much. It's interesting because the kids who read the kind of stuff and go up, grow up expecting more of it, yeah. and they don't really get it from the publishers because it's assumed like comics. Uh, not now, but it was kind of assumed in the good old days of comics that people just grow out of reading comics. Mm. And people just assume that they'll grow out of reading stuff like Diary of the Kid. But that obviously we know that doesn't happen. People don't really grow out of reading stuff like no. that. They just want more of it. Just aimed at their particular age group. Yeah, I'll say it again. You know, I've been reading since I was seven or eight. I've been reading comic books. So, you know, and I'm 
fucking 40 plus now, Queenie. I haven't stopped. <laughs> Most people don't stop. No, no, no. And I think that there is no reason why they would. You yeah. know, uh, the, the Japanese have got a handle on that. Yeah. You know, yeah. They have manga and targeting everyone aged zero to 90. Absolutely. And I think that's the difference. And most of them read stuff targeted by teens. <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think it's more it's more a cultural thing than it is any other. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there the is... French do. They yeah. consider it an art form. They don't care, you know, that something's a comic. Yeah, I think it's just it's steeped in all that all that uh, US bullshit um, that happened in the fifties. Just Anglo-Saxon culture. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, I mean, what else can you put it to? Uh, you know, there was, you know, all these other cultures have embraced it, and as you as you rightly say, you know, they've got they've got stories for the gamut of of age groups and and communities, but here in the West, for some reason, it's still frowned upon. And I've still got horror stories of people throughout well, my... Well, I wouldn't say West because, well, France is part of the West. So, oh, that's you know, and, and Belgium and all those places. I would think, you know, and Span, there's a lot of Spanish comics out there. So much. Mexicans read a lot of comics. Latin America reads a lot of comics. It is really just the Anglo world, you know, English-speaking Anglo world that has that Let's go with that then. Problem. Let's go with that. Because... Yeah. Italians read a lot of comics. <laughs> so, yeah, it's yeah. bizarre. I, I, I've, I've, I've yet to understand why people have such a hang-up, and I don't, I, I don't know if it's because they, some people have said they don't know how to read comics. There is, there is evidence that people will stay away from them because they don't understand how they uh, work. Look, the young have no problem. It's a generational thing. Like <laughs> these days, schools teach visual literacy, but. Teachers are too overworked to teach it properly. Mm, fair enough, yeah. Schools are meant to teach this sort of stuff. And so um, I, I can't imagine a young person not having been exposed to comics at some point in time in 2021. It's like, it's just, it doesn't exist like that, that, that young person. If you're going to be on the internet, you're going to run into comics. If you're going to be on Facebook, you're going to run into comics. Even if you are just on Facebook, you will run into comics in some shape or form. So the, I don't know how to read it. It's just baffling. Um, <laughs> I think it's just probably something else that people don't want to read it for. And um, I, would, I wouldn't worry about that. Comics culture is definitely not going away. It's getting more because it's such a good way to communicate. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And it's, it's, it's only getting bigger and stronger. You know, so it's a generation thing. Well, that's a, that's a shame. Do you get out to many conventions? Have you, have you done a stint? Selling your wares face to face with people? Yeah, I comic guest at um, Oz Comic Con and Supernova quite frequently. How does that go for you? Oh, it's fine. People like my work. <laughs> I usually do manage to sell a fair number of books there. Not an awful lot, but then I don't do any marketing. I just go there because I've been invited. It's, just, it's a good <laughs> way to talk to people. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, but um, I did my. I have a series called Greatest Queens of History, um, Women Who Were Kings. Yes, and yes. so it's about famous historical queens. So it's um, biographies about them. People like that. You know, they fight with the kids all the time. It's available from Scholastic, so schools tend to, you know, have it as well. So That's people great. do like that kind of thing. Yeah, like Fable Kingdom. Like I did that mostly as an experiment. You know, just to do a three book series based on um, kind of fairy tale fantasy that is done entirely in comics prose, just to see what my mileage on creating something that is common prose is. And that book's like kind of turned a profit off, you know? Wow. And um, I was very surprised that it actually turned a profit. <laughs> yeah, right. But, uh, there you go, you know? I think I do fine for myself on the comic circuit, but I don't spend that, that much time on it. 
because I do other illustration work as well. Right. Now with the PhD thing, who knows what the future is going to be like for conventions, given the way that we, as a society, we function these days. <laughs> so you're editing a lot of your own work. You don't necessarily have editors out there, particularly when you're working on your own stuff. Do you do you send it off to someone? Copy editors, yeah. Just or, copy editors? Yeah, the Comics Pro stuff definitely needs a copy editor. Yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, how do you... Um, for yeah. Comics Pro, it's definitely just copy editors. People really, like, I work with a number of editors now for short comics, for long comics, for whatever. Editors never have never really criticised my panelling. <laughs> like, uh, like every, I've never really gotten much feedback for my my uh, creative choices in my work. So and that was true from the start of my my career, so to speak, from the dreaming, like uh, when I had a, you know, completely absent editor, like the one, uh, the real editor that came out afterwards, Carol, she was pretty much fine with most of my panelling choices. A lot of the time it was like, you need to word this a little bit better. It's like, um, maybe this needs to, uh, you know, be drawn a little bit clearer. That's, you know, this, this table looks a bit wonky, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah, but generally speaking, yeah, I, I've actually done okay with the whole editing thing. Like, I get very little feedback from editors because I don't really see any problems with my work, I guess. Right, right. And that's been true regardless of the vast number of editors I've worked with by now. Yeah, and it's true for copy editing because um, I work with people who sometimes, you know, make suggestions and you do things like that. And if I think it's a good idea, I'll do it. But if there is a reason why I couldn't, or shouldn't feel that it should be done, then I'll just let them know. I mean, right. if you can explain yourself why something needs to be done in a certain way, then most people would be happy. Yeah, and a lot of the time it's technical stuff. It's like, you know, there is a, for example, when people ask, can you make this speed bump bigger, just like, or, you know, flip this, you know, change the position of the characters. And I say, well, you don't want to change the position of the characters because they're all facing left in this page. So yeah. you don't want to suddenly change this panel, <laughs> you know, just to get a bigger word balloon because then suddenly this character will be facing right and yeah. that will be against green circle screen direction. You know, yes. stuff like, I've done stuff like that and explained before. So typically I just compromise and just raise the panel and ch- just raise the panel a bit higher just to get the speech balloon in. So I've done stuff like that and people yeah, right. will be fine with it. Okay. Because as long as you can explain yourself why you don't want to make a change, and, you know, and you can fix whatever problem they had and people don't mind. And editors appreciate that, I think. Um, there's a lot of crazy people out there who are not pleasant to work with, but I think editors are people appreciate someone who is, you know, I guess, easier to work with, so to speak. How critical are you of your own work? I'm pretty critical. Like I said, and it begins at the seed idea. Like I said, when I get a great idea at the time, and so it seems, I let it sit for a few months and then revisit it to see whether it's still so great. Because very often your ideas that were great at the moment could turn out to be completely stupid after two months. <laughs> and so that happens a lot. Right. So it actually, this, this criticism process starts at the very, very beginning. It's like, if you don't have an amazing idea, why bother these days? You know, that's what I think. And so after that, then you plan out your story and, uh, you know, do the whole thing, you know, line by line thing, page one, page two, and then, you know, draw it to its natural conclusion. And again, I let that sit for a few months. It's like, okay, so I have a great idea, but that does that mean I have a great story? You know, just because you have a great story hook doesn't mean that you'll be able to take it and bring it to its logical conclusion, which is a great ending. So once I got that out, and it's like, okay, bring it back out a few months again, and then I'll read it, it's like, yeah, yeah, good pacing, yeah, good story, yep. Then I go ahead with it. Now, and I do that at every stage of the process to reevaluate what I've got, because people hate rereading their work, and I hate it too. But... (laughs) When you let things sit for a while and then come back and reread it, then you'll know whether you've got a good story. 
whether you'd like I'm engrossed in this, yep. you know, then that means you've got something good. Right, right. Yeah, so and a it... lot of the time it's just wait, sitting on something and waiting mm-hmm. and forgetting about it. So not constantly thinking about it, just forget about it, do, some, do other stuff in your life and handle your other ideas, you know, things like that. Come back and think, okay, what, how does this read? How does this feel? Because the thing is, my, my basis for a good story is whether it entertains me. You know, I don't know whether it entertains other people. And yeah. Sirius says that there's no way to know. Yeah. But if at least I'm entertained and I'm enjoying this, then that means someone else will probably. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm a very, very harsh critic of the <laughs> pop culture I consume. Most yeah. creators are. Yeah. And so if it passes the creator test, you know, you, you know that you've got something good. And, of course, you should always show it, show it to other people. Have you ever gotten to a point where you're – where you've invested a, a large amount of time into a project and then at, you know, at a, at a late stage, you've gone, no, nah, just not doing it. And then just stopped. I have to say no, because right from the start, I was always somebody who was, you know, very big on the whole seed idea. After my first comic, which is called Shirley's story, my first actual comic. Yep. And it was a complete disaster. Like the production process was awful from start to finish. Cause I didn't have a set ending when I started. And so I had a, I drew something like well over 100 pages for something that is only a 50-page story. And it's like, it was such a nightmare that I just never wanted to go through it again. And uh, I was like, okay, you know, from now on, I will change the way I do things. (laughs) Right. You know, and and use the process that I did at the, the, uh, that I just described to you. And it's like, so I've never been to the point where things just, I had, I looked at what I had and it's nearly finished and I realized that it's not going to work. if you do what I do, you're unlikely to ever get to that stage. Right, right, gotcha. You know, but here's the thing. People get to that stage because they're overly invested in something and they don't want to let it go. Yeah. You know, but the thing is, if you don't want to end up in a place like that, then understand that 90% of your ideas at the seed stage is going to be utter garbage. <laughs> uh, what matters is execution. So... When I have a seed idea and uh, it's terrible and it turns out to be terrible, that would be 90% of the time, like my two-month test and then the other two-month test. When they don't pass that, they don't pass it. And sometimes people don't want to let a good idea die. Yeah. You know, but you're not letting it die. You're just leaving it in the seed phase. You're just putting it back in the drawer. Yeah. Maybe 10 years later, you know, like open the drawer again and you have you look at your old ideas with fresh eyes and you have all these new ideas appear. Yeah, so I think that people get overly invested in their work and waste a crap ton of time because they can't let things go, it's, particularly at an early stage. Yeah. I mean, people should know when things don't, don't work out. They should know at an early stage. Interestingly enough that you say that, I recently uh, interviewed someone else and they said a similar thing about, they said that they don't look at any ideas that from the past that could potentially be something new. So if they come up with an idea, depending on how far they get, they'll continue working on it but at whatever point it stops it actually just goes away they don't even think about it ever again and i thought that was an interesting point is is just continually oh, coming yeah. up with brand new ideas rather than than letting something sit or trying to to work something out so constantly working and working and working on it before they've even put anything on the paper yeah yeah that's pretty much my process you got you got to get to know the characters in your head like at the end of the day with how good the story is it's characters are going to carry it Yep. If your characters do not sit around in your head in a lounge and just start chatting, if they, you don't get to that stage with them, there is no point. Because you're not going to, when you can sit down to write the story, you're not going to have anything to work 
because your characters are going to say things. And if they don't actually already have things to say to each other in random circumstances in your head, then that means you don't have anything substantial. Now, if your characters are well-formed enough and they have their own goals, motivations, their history, their personalities, their likes and dislikes, their, you know, sometimes some people just hate each other for no apparent reason, or maybe you're attracted to someone, but your way of dealing, you know, showing it is to just, you know, hate on them. Yeah. There's, there's so many different aspects of people's personalities that you can bring. And very often, um, if you're unable to make them all sit down and actually talk about something, the weather, some TV shows, yeah. like things like that, then that means you don't have someone that is fully formed enough. Mm. You know, it's always a good idea to just let your characters loose you know, in your head and let them have conversations about random stuff. Because then that's how you form personalities. Yeah, so like, kind of like a Bible. So you write, you know, essentially writing, uh, writing biographies of your characters before you've even started the story. Some people do it like that. I never do. Right. I usually start with the character design. So if I think, because very often when my characters roll off the, I guess, the production line, (laughs) they just have a face and that's it. They don't really have any discernible personalities, so to speak. I find that they don't develop any discernible personalities until they have something that someone, they have a history with that they can bounce off with. Right. So typically my characters, they... I usually create a different character from them that they're already with at the start. Whether this other character makes it into the story or not is irrelevant. Right. Because you're just giving them a sounding board. It's like sometimes these background characters, like everyone, every character has some kind of background character in their life that the reader may or may not ever encounter in that story. Right? And like a mother, a father, an uncle, or whatever. And it's like this character may or may not have a face, but it's someone that they've known and that they've talked with and they've known for a long time. When you put them, sit them down and have conversations with these people, it's like, what do they talk about? You know, so that is a way of building a password character that doesn't involve writing long biographies. You mentioned character design. Does that mean you draw this character that you're, that you're envisioning to talk and then you're able mm-hmm. to build around them? Or is it is it still all just in your head? You, you envision what they look yes. like? Yes. Right. I typically envision what they look like and then I do a sketch on it. And very often what I sketch don't end up looking what I envisioned it, but that's fine. Like I've gotten to the stage where I could, you know, roll with that. Previously it was a bit more awkward, this phase, but I typically have an idea of what I want. Because most of the characters, when you design them, in particular in a, in a manga style um, kind of comic, is that the character's design, so you can easily tell at a glance who is who. You know, so when you have a character design and that's meant to be a main character, depending on the type of story it is, they have to stand out from the rest of the cast. And there's many different layers of character, uh, levels of character design is that you have people who clearly look like they're the main character and people clearly look like they're side characters and people clearly look like they're background characters of no importance. <laughs> right. And um, there's a certain level of coolness factor or memorability factor when it comes to character design. Some character designs are just more memorable than others. Right. Just because of how they look or their natural facial expression. You know how people's faces sometimes settle into a natural kind of facial expression, a default facial expression that they're wearing. Yeah, I was just doing it right then. (laughs) Resting bitch face syndrome. (laughs) You know, sometimes people, yes, and some people have permanent smirk. (laughs) Yeah, or some people just look constantly tired. Regardless of what they're doing. I mean, these are all personality traits that you can 
you can play with if you're a character designer as well. Yeah, right. And personalities come through on that. Maybe sometimes people have ridiculously large noses or maybe they have ridiculously large eyes. Yeah. I actually drew a character who was somebody's sister and kind of insignificant. And it's like, well, she looks too boring. What can I do? For whatever reason, I gave her a ridiculously large mouth. That was larger on average compared to all the other characters. And suddenly I had a personality trait. Right. This person instantly became a gossip monger. Right. Never a motor mouth who just never shut up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it became really interesting because then you sit down and have conversations and this, oh my God, all the characters in that story ran away from this person <laughs> because they just never would shut up. <laughs> and he was just, oh, and just go on and on and on. And it's like, oh, okay, so these things do happen. That is that makes for some fun character um, interactions between the, your cast, and uh, unfortunately, this story did not make it. It wasn't interesting enough. Right. Wow. But these character ideas just stay on. It's like a big mouth girl is still around somewhere, kicking in my subconscious. Maybe <laughs> I would bust her out for one story or another. Never know. Well, that's that's. A, I've, I, you know what? I've never made that connection. I've never actually really thought about how one particular trait could change. A character significantly even just as just as you've described and how other characters interact with them because this particular character she was created because she was meant to be a sister of a detective like she's brilliant at deduction yeah it's like well how can i differentiate her from her sister yeah you know they're different characters i assume that one like the sister is uh, like the main character is a bit more quiet mm. but i assume she's a bit more outgoing but that's not enough yeah right. You know, because um, that doesn't—that's not significant enough. But actually, it gives them something more of a comical character trait based on purely, you know, just because I drew a big mouth on her, <laughs> and it's like then it becomes something funny. Yeah, yeah. You know, and given the certain situation, because it is some of a detective story, is like it gives it kind of creates interesting scenarios where you have this one character who everybody knows is brilliant and can probably solve this case in one go, but you just don't want to talk to them because, you know, <laughs> they are just going to talk your ear off. So yeah, right. um, it does kind of create interesting situations and uh, character dynamics, which is what you want. This is what makes people remember your story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In respect to story, you mentioned earlier that, you know, so you, you, you're seeding, you, you're giving a break to the idea, then you come back, you check it out. Can't, sorry, I can't remember if how you actually sit and write. Do you you draw and then you write the story? You write the story first and then you do like the the layouts. Like when it comes to actually, writing I actually the story. just lay do a line by line summary of the story and then I just jump straight into it because I do lay out all the pages. I run all the dialogue myself, do all the art, do all the character designs. So I don't even bother developing a script sometimes. I just like type right into design what I think the characters might say in any given moment. Right. Which is bad because you do need to copy edit it. So eventually you need to rip all that script and put it in a Word document and send it off to someone who can copy edit. But I don't actually bother to actually write down any sort of scraps, substantial script. Right. And, and that's, because yeah. I feel that because I feel that sometimes whenever I do it that way, like write words onto a doc word document, it turns out to be too the sentences turn out to be too long sometimes. Yeah, right. And that's terrible. So, because I don't have enough space on the page to actually fit that dialogue. So what is the point of writing dialogue where you have to cut anyway because it doesn't fit on the comic page? Right, right. And the horrible thing about writing long lines of dialogue, particularly in manga, is that you got to push the dialogue onto the next page and your page count goes up. Oh, it's like, this dialogue, can I cut it? If I can't, then I'll have to shift this block of dialogue onto the next page and then everything gets shifted further, you know, an extra page in and so on and so forth. Right. So, so that's why I don't write scripts because um, 
if it doesn't fit onto the comic page, like in InDesign, where I've laid it out, there's no point. Right. Because and... then you're just upping the amount of work you do. And if you know the characters well enough, then you know that what they're going to say in any given situation. Yeah, so, so it's more of a plot. You 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 do the visual narrative uh, according to the plot, and then you fit the dialogue into that plot. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, right, right. Because you know, I mean, it starts off with not knowing, uh, like knowing the characters and who they are and how they'll react in most given circumstances that you put them in. So someone might say something and then it's like, oh, this doesn't work. And it's like, I think they'll probably say something like that. Then just rewrite it if they change what they say. Because at the end of the day, I don't really pay that much attention to the specific tonal phrasing of what a character says. Because I think that in terms of communication, only 30% of it is based on what the character is actually saying. How they look when they're saying it, their body language when they're saying it, you know, how the other characters are reacting. That I think is actually part of the communication and it's a lot more important than what the actual words in the dialogue are. You know, so as, as people say, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. in comics, even though without any kind of sound or animation, how they stand, how they look, you know, that's more, and how they're reacting in a given situation is probably more important than the actual, you know, words themselves. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Total sense. Yeah, at least that's my opinion. Of course, a lot of people would disagree. But then I'm coming at it from a perspective of a writer artist. Yeah. You know, people who are pure writers probably don't think that way. And that's fine, you know, but I would say that in a visual medium, it's like, it's like movies, you know? You can write a really great line, but if the actor does not deliver it, deliver it properly, well, what is the, there is no point. Yeah. What's you, the can point? Control, you can completely ruin a movie with bad casting. You know, no <laughs> yeah. matter how great your script is, if the, if the casting is good. Alternatively, there's actors who could take an average line that doesn't mean anything and turn it into something completely epic that can make an entire movie. That's been done before. You know, so delivery counts so much in movies, so I don't think it's any different in comics. That's interesting. Yeah, I've never actually... I mean, aside from intuitively taking that on when you're reading a comic i've never actually thought about it the level of meaning a, 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 a you know a, a speech balloon could have tonally well it's most it's mostly what the character looks like when they're saying less more uh, speech balloons of course can be extremely expressive too as can things like font yep you know this is something that western comics do a lot better than japanese comics japanese comics always rely on facial expressions and character you know um body language. Western comics do a lot more when it comes to font and word balloon, kind of doing fancy things with this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, what is what is the difference? There, there is definitely a cultural difference there. You know, is this a huge deal? It depends on the situation and style of storytelling you're going for, in my, in my opinion. I must say that being bilingual, have you tried at, at some point reading, let's say, a Chinese version of a manga and an English version and the difference, is there a huge difference in the, in the messages that are conveyed in the book? Not really. Well, I read the Jap I read Japanese as well, well enough to read a typical boring, uh, you know, a, a typical um, manga that's aimed at, you know, a teen audience, like short and jump. Yeah. I can read Japanese. Right. Is there a lot of difference? No, I don't think so. I guess the, like my attitude probably comes from the fact that I'm bilingual. You know, and um, and realize that a lot of the, no matter how nuanced you write an English line, a lot of stuff is just lost in translation. It's not just a matter of not doing a direct translation. It's just that sometimes there's cultural context to consider as well. Things that just sometimes make sense 
in one language as doesn't in another. Yeah, right. And it kind of colors my attitude towards other stuff as well. Like, for example, lip syncing. Like, lip syncing in Disney animation in particular was a big deal. But nobody ever cares about it. And uh, outside the world of Disney, because I remember many years ago when people would complain about the popularity of anime, it's like their mouth just flaps for five seconds. It's like, why do people like this kind of animation? <laughs> and it's like, I didn't even know lip syncing existed until I was well in my twenties, because when I grew up watching Disney movies, I watched them all in dubbed Cantonese. Right. You know, so lips never synced for me whenever I watched Disney movies, because I watched them all in a different language and which is not English. Yeah. And so I think people are finally catching on is that in a globalized market, it's like your stuff is going to be translated in a different language. And all the lip syncing you painstakingly did for all your Disney movies in English are now completely going to be missed by like 5 billion people on the planet because they're not going to be watching it in English. And even if they did, and I watched a few Disney movies in English, but I never noticed. Yeah, right. Because I think it's like, who cares? Like I was probably reading the subtitles and yep. stuff. Yep, yep, like yep. Nobody, nobody watches animation for lip syncing. <laughs> yeah, I, I've often, I've because I'm also bilingual, and there are a lot of things that culturally just don't make sense when you transfer them into English, and and mm -hmm. not not knowing Chinese or Japanese, I imagine there there is a difference between the two languages, particularly in you know even just one comic, there might be nuances that had completely lost when you read the English version. Mm -hmm. And I suppose I've never, I've never actually asked yeah. anyone who reads, who can read the Chinese languages that may well be present in a particular comic book. I don't know if there is a massive difference or whether it matters at all. I think it's just a matter of exposure or just personal interest. I've spoken to a few superhero fans who just don't read manga, not because they haven't tried. It's just that they don't get it. Yeah. It's like the neural pathways in, in their brain has been burned into a certain shape. <laughs> by reading superhero comics and they went asked to read something that has completely different pacing and style and you know storytelling and like their head just melts and they just can't deal with it. I see that with um, uh, manga readers as well. Um, for example, I, I'm a big fan of Vertigo Line in their earlier works. Yep. I mean, I don't know what, what's up with Vertigo these days. It got killed, obviously. It's gone. But, um, it's, it's no longer around. They're, they're, yeah, their they're later works I've never been really into. But the Sandman, you know, Transnet and that kind of stuff, uh, I liked, you know, a lot of... Um, but it goes earlier work. Yeah. Whenever I try and get manga fans to read it, they're like, "Ah, it's too wordy. <laughs> can't be asked, you know, as yeah. in, it's like they just don't, uh, just can't get into it because of this, the wall of text issues that um, to, to manga readers, it looks like a wall of text. To, you know, Western comic readers, it's just normal. Yeah. You know, so there is a distinct cultural difference here and people are just very often unwilling to cross the line because they're, you know, they just think it's too much effort or they just like, oh, too hard. Yeah, so I see that coming both ways, really. Yeah, I've never thought of it that way, to be honest. And and I've mentioned it many times. I've never been a huge fan of manga. It's not that I don't, much like what you've just said, I, it's not that I dislike it. It's just that I've never gotten into it. There was, there was uh, the Blade of the Immortal was probably the closest thing to manga that I read. And, and, I've, and I've talked about it before on the show with other, with other creators. And I suppose... I loved, I loved that series. I loved it. It was, it had everything, it had everything I ever wanted in, in a samurai book, but yet there was so, so much of the visual language that uh, some of it, I just couldn't understand visually. So I'm not even talking about the exposition or what, how it was written, but um, some of the movements of the drawing just kind of just threw me. And I was just like, what am I looking at? I don't understand. You know, it was whether it was uh, the fault of, you know, the, the artist trying to, 
make it as kinetic an image as possible. But a lot of the times my eye would just get lost. And I suppose there were other, there was other manga that would probably be easier to read and easier to follow. But I think I just, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't get past that. Yeah, yeah. And Blade of the Mortal can get pretty scratchy at times. Yeah. I mean, he's actually not really a good representation of a typical manga artist, skilled as he is. Yeah, I didn't I don't remember so. the name of the creator. Oh, not the In terms of um, samurai art, there's the one that by the creator of the um, Slam Dunk, he did. What's it called? Vagabond. Oh, yes. Yeah, if you want a good samurai manga, that is probably a better representation of good samurai manga. But I think his pacing is too slow. I was like, <laughs> but and his, his style is also very realistic as well. I do remember um, Vagabond, you watch, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's another example of, you know, a samurai manga that I think would be a bit more conventional in its in style. Yeah, right. Yeah, but um, I think I don't think it was ever finished, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably um, the reason why I enjoyed why I enjoyed Blade of the Immortal so much was because it was it was it was more of a hybrid than it was actually just straight up manga. I mean, there is such a but the, the trouble with um talking about samurai specific manga is that there is such a long history of samurai manga in Japan. Right. That I don't really read because I'm not into that sort of stuff. Yeah. But uh, these creators could actually be drawing from that history of Japanese. You know, samurai manga and so there might probably be kind of visual references to to samurai that you know uh, someone who's not versed in that kind of manga would miss but i don't really know like i said i don't know that much about the the uh that particular genre of manga because i don't read it much yeah well i'm absolutely inadequate when i'm talking about manga because if that's the closest thing that i can talk about in terms of manga then i'm i'm not hitting anywhere near the mark when talking about manga, when people have often expressed uh, their their affinity for it, I've always had uh, issue because I don't know enough about it. So I used to disparage it. And in my later years, I'm even more reticent to comment on anything about it. You know, there are plenty of people around the world who absolutely love it. Yeah, look, a lot of things don't appeal to people. <laughs> it's fine to not like something just because it's just not your thing. Yeah. And that happens a lot. The older you get, I think the more you're going to come up with stuff, like, uh, come across things like this. Is that like, it is not for me? That's just all you could say. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of like, considering lot of that. the popularity of anime and manga out there and video gaming. There's a lot of people who are just not into that sort of stuff. You know, just like video uh, video games. I've I've been I've been a massive gamer all my life. And the amount of gamers that I come across who are not into this, not into that, even though they're gamers, it's like it happens a lot. Yeah. And that's just completely normal. If yeah. something's not for you, it's not for you. If you've given it a go and it's just like, eh, then there's nothing more to say. But it, but I think it's got more to do with, you know, the, the history I have with it. So I, I don't know if I actually don't like it or I've just just ignored it. You know, the stuff that I've seen, I've loved. And as a kid, I grew up on a lot of Japanese animation. So I don't understand where I've jumped the gun and gone, no, no, none of that's for me. Because there is, I, I imagine, I probably just haven't found the right type of thing for me. Well, if you find something you liked, and that's great. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's just so much stuff out there. It's like, you know, a lot of people get into manga through anime. Yeah. It's like you're watching this anime, it's like, oh, it ended, season ended, where do I read more? Oh, there's more, just read the manga. A lot of people are like that. Like anime is undergoing a massive renaissance now, now, now again. Like um, they've gotten a lot of good animes come out. Like uh, for a time there was absolutely nothing interesting. But um, now there's a lot of great boundaries of animation that are being pushed and all that. And it's kind of gotten a lot 
of people back into manga. I mean, there was always a substantial readership, but now there's more because of the anime crowd coming back in. Yeah, and these things go in cycles. Um, manga's doing fine. You know, we're talking about the highest uh, grossing manga sales, like all the short and jump stuff. They're doing fine. Um, I've I've actually, I thought pretty good about the new generation of manga artists in Japan. Like, uh, there's been some newer works, like by completely new artists who mm. are just doing their first work, like um, the person who did Demon Slayer. Yep. Um, I think it's a woman, actually, but people can't really be sure. There's Jujutsu Kaisen. So these are all work done by younger creators in Japan, and the quality of it is like, okay, you know, your writing's there, your storytelling's there, your characters are there. It's like, that's all you need, you know? So I'm not worried about the younger generation of manga because people are talking about, oh, you know, all the famous people are dying, you know, One Piece has gone on for like 500,000 years, <laughs> and are there any new blood coming up? And it's like, there is. And it's been very encouraging because um, these younger creators are doing a great job. I think that also they're actually writing, like they seem to be a bit more mature as well. I think the audience has changed. Yeah. Shorter manga traditionally has been aimed at younger kids and the, the attitudes of One Piece and Naruto and Bleach, that generation reflected that. I look at Jujutsu Kaisen and Demon Slayer and they're just so much more nihilistic, right. you know, in their outlook. Yeah compared to some of the old, uh, the older manga. And I think it's just a reflection of the audience. Our kids being more, just more grown up these days about the ways that the world works. And uh, or adults reading these as well. Yeah, I've, I've always been uh, fascinated with, with the way that they, in my experience, and I don't know how much of it has changed because it's been a long time since I've properly looked through different types of books in the manga realm, but how they were able to pump out so many books in the same time period versus what, let's say, you know, the American publishing companies would, and just for the absence of, of color, the volume of stuff that just kept coming out, particularly if they were new, it was every couple of months from memory. And I was just like, man, they must, you know, these guys, did they ever get off the chair? And assistants hanging off each arm, you know, it is also a very, very competitive industry. People ruin their health to get that workload out. Right. And it is not pretty at all. Like there's intense violation of every labor law in existence, probably. Jesus. But um, it's always been like that, yeah, you know. Right. But if you manage to get a hit, the rewards are amazing. It's getting less now because, like I said, there's a rollback of creators' rights when it comes to all of the creative industries, including manga. But certainly the, the creator of Demon Slayer is swimming in money, <laughs> sold millions and millions, and... So if you manage to be successful, you'll do fine. But again, it is a star system, meaning that you're either JK Rowling or you're nobody. And it's true for all the creative industries, but people who make a living in manga are kind of rare for that reason. I think we just see most successes, not any of the failures. What happened to them? Like people who had a go at the system just didn't make it. And it's uh, kind of tragic, to be honest, but these stories exist for a reason. Of course. it's. I suppose, as you said, it's... It's sad because a lot of creative industries like that, whether it doesn't matter where you look, there are more failures than there are successes, unfortunately. Where where to for Quinny Chan from this point on? So I'll be doing that kind of digital comics slash PhD game thing. I assume I'll be spending the next two, three years on that since that's the length of my PhD. Wow. So that would be where I'm heading. I would still like to continue some of my other, you know, um, series like the Women Who Were King series, but... I have to put that aside for while I get my PhD done. So I think the world has also changed considerably. Um, I'll see where things are at in a few years' time. Right now, I'm kind of busy doing that. But uh, it is 
uh, it is what it is, you know, the world, like who knows where the cons will be able to continue the way that they used to be able to. Um, who knows where the publishing industry will be at in a few weeks' time because thanks to the um, COVID thing and everyone's on lockdown, people have jumped online a lot more, so maybe there will be a massive boom in digital comics, yeah. you know, or whatever. <laughs> like I have no idea. Things are just up in the air right now. The economy isn't doing great, so I hope that doesn't derail half the, half the country or half the world, and it probably will. Yeah, so, um, yeah, things I, I don't want to make any predictions right now because of the way things are. Right. Hopefully things will return to normal, but something tells me that it, it won't. So I can't say I'm being really optimistic about this because I'm trying to be realistic. So you won't... Yes, so I will, don't want to. Will you be trying, or is it too much work, or will you be at all trying to come up with other creative projects in concert with your PhD, or is it, or are you just going to concentrate on that for the time being? I I don't want to do anything aside from my PhD right now because obviously you need to pass the PhD. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you gotta, I've got to do my written thesis and that's a crap ton of reading and work and writing and all that. Yeah. Then I've got to create, uh, do this creative work for the PhD. Yeah. So all my energies will be focused on that. And if I, I take, do take on illustration work, a short illustration job. Like I do work for school magazine yeah, right now and illustrations for other uh, uh, magazines and things like that. But um. Apart from that, I'm just trying to focus on the PhD because cool. that is the one long-term project that accidentally has to, has a deadline and has to be good or I'm in big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Queenie, I, I guess we're, we'll uh, wrap it up now. And um, thank you so much for telling us all about yourself and, and how you Thanks. create your work. And you're welcome. Thank you very much for your time. It's, it was unreal. Yeah. And if you want to see more of my work, you can just go to queeniechan.com and yeah, you can see what I'm doing there. Thanks for giving us an insight into your into your oh, world. Thank you. Particularly this um the PhD. Good, good luck with it. Thank it you. It's so complicated. Yeah, talk to you another time. Indeed, indeed. Hope to. Thanks, Queenie. Bye. Okay, thanks. Bye. That's the end of this episode of Graphic Nature. Thanks for listening. If you could please rate and review the show on whatever podcast service you use, it'll be greatly appreciated. If you have any thoughts regarding the show, feel free to send an email to feedback at graphicnature.media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And for more information about the show, visit Graphic Nature on the web by typing into your web browser or search engine, graphicnature.media. Thanks very much. And until next time, enjoy the comics you read and read the comics you enjoy. Thanks very much. Credits. Written, produced, and presented by Zoran Ilyevsky. Editing and audio production, Samuel Brown. Additional editing, Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio consultation, Archie Cuthbertson, Dan Moore. Credits announcer, Simon Winkler. Theme character voices, Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio excerpts of Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, Wortham vs. Gaines on Decency Standards, used courtesy of New York City Municipal Archives. You've been listening to Graphic Nature, the podcast.